Welcome to the Going to Seed podcast. I'm your host, Shane Simonson. And today we are talking with Indigenous agriculture expert, Bruce Pascoe. So let's get started. Uh, can you tell me something about your background and the path that led you to growing Australian Indigenous crops? Yeah, I'm a, a Yuan Bunurong Tasman. I had a farm in the 70s and early 80s where I was just doing conventional farming. But after Dark Emu came out, I could see that the enthusiasm for Australian Aboriginal foods wasn't matched by any concern for Aboriginal involvement in that industry. So I bought another farm in Far East Gippsland and with other Aboriginal people from the district, uh, we've been growing grains and tubers of Aboriginal people uh, on the farm ever since. And we're now able to sell those through our website, but also to some restaurants and bakers. And this is probably going out to an audience around the world. Could you give people a quick overview about your book, Dark Emu, that got so much attention? I I think there's a a wider audience out there who who may not have had a chance to pick it up yet. Well, uh, the Dark Emu was an attempt to explain the, the history of Australia from an Aboriginal point of view and to explain that not only did we lose the war for the land, but that war interrupted our agricultural economy. So I tried to point out exactly what Aboriginal people were doing in the food industry. And it met with a a lot of enthusiasm from a lot of Australians, but also who like to think that Aboriginal people were not really human and didn't deserve any kind of recompense for the taking of the land. Australia is still the only colonial country on earth where recognition of the people as first peoples hasn't been done. Also, the only colonial nation on earth where there's been no tree. Mm. And now we are the only colonial country on earth where the Australian people have actively resisted recognising Aboriginal people as part of the country. Yeah, it's it's a very hot button topic and I've been watching with interest all of the toing and froing, I think is probably the best way to put it, over the issues. And part of me wonders how much of it is... Sometimes a debate happens when there's a limitation in the language. So when I introduced you as being an expert in... Australian Indigenous crops, just the word crop, is it quite the right term? It depends on how you want to use it. And and agriculture or not agriculture feels like a really oversimplification, that it's one or the other, that there's not actually many, many different ways for humans to interact with their ecosystem. Pardon me. Yeah, crops is a red rag to a bull to some Australians. But we have to it's, it's a lot more productive to talk about food provision mm-hmm. and the interaction with the earth and caring for the for the country, how we managed the country that we happen to be on, this continent of Australia. There was certainly some intensive devotion of labour to food provision 
We can see that because people were making dams, they were storing seed they had gathered, actively planting seed in the in the season after rain, production of flour, you know, many, many, many different uh, food provision techniques and none of which has ever been taught in Australian history. Mm -hmm. And Australia has a real problem with its history, with understanding its history. And as of last Saturday, we have a, a real problem with accepting the fact that Aboriginal people were, were here first. It's, it's very sad times for Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Hopefully, I'm, hopefully I'm, we have another chance in the future. Oh, sorry. I don't know about other opportunities. How many opportunities do you want in 230 years mm. to right the wrongs of the past as a Christian nation? Mm. How many chances do you need? I'm personally devastated by it. For the first time in my life, I feel like I don't belong in this country. Mm. I feel like my, not just my identity, which has been questioned, that's always been questioned because of my skin colour, <clears throat> but how Aboriginal people in general are viewed by 61% of the population. It's a terrible feeling. And right now, I think Australia's hell-bent on becoming American. Mm. So maybe pivoting, since this is a, a show that mostly focuses on people doing experiments around the world to grow and develop and interact with different food plants, that's our kind of broad range of topics, and that's what got me interested in you. What I haven't heard a lot about in the media is the work that you're doing on your farm and other people that you might know about who are reconnecting with food plants from Australia. I, I would love to hear some more about, well, maybe to start, do you want to tell us what your local growing conditions are like? Like how much space you're working with, the soil type, the temperatures, how do you deal with water and possibly fertility and weeds, though your management systems might be, might take a very different approach to that. Yeah, we've got 140 acres of what was a, a pretty well buggered up beef farm. It was a really cheap farm because of that and the fact that it's incredibly remote. Mm. We're in far east Gippsland, so it's a temperate climate with reasonably reliable rainfall, very variable soil. We're, we're building soil every day because we got rid of cattle and we've, we are allowing a thatch to, to develop on the, on the land. But we're also actively promoting kangaroo grass and spear grass and some other grasses by the use of fire to those grasses and we've perfected a technique to convert them into clean grain and flour and we're trying to replicate with machinery what the old people did because kangaroo grass is notorious notoriously difficult to work with but it is incredibly uh, rich in protein it has 27 percent protein compared to about 11 for wheat. Mm. Our tubers are the same. Our manya or vanilla lily is highly nutritious, highly uh, rich in vitamin C, etc. many other minerals and vitamins. And it's a fabulous vegetable. We're having to tease Australia 
into accepting it as a vegetable because Australia's ignorance of its history and its culture and the fact that Australian plants can be eaten is 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 a hard job but our ambition is that we can introduce Australia to these new vegetables and grasses and maybe along the way we can break bread across the table as we talk about our mutual history mm. um, and our shared future too my, my guts feel heavy while talking about that this week and I can't imagine ever feeling any different but we will continue because we are very anxious that Australia shares our history but also shares our knowledge of the land and shares our care for the land it's pretty obvious with the degradation of soils in Australia since colonization that we need to do something very soon and people want non-aboriginal people to uh, be part of part of the land not enemies of it mm. and uh, you mentioned weeds before i think and we're conscious of not introducing m more poisons onto this land so we don't use fertilizer chemical fertilizer we use a, a yuki mulch and a wattle mulch dotted down completely that's our fertilizer we use no poisons, no sprays, and we have a steam weeder. It was an, a, an expensive acquisition for the farm, but because there's exotic weeds like Kaikuyu, we have to use steam weeders to keep those away from our crops or they will take over. So we, we're desperate to get Australia to start treating the country like she was our mother because that's our view the australian aboriginal view my confidence in all of this has taken absolute hammering and we're relying on each other aboriginal people to support us because we we're not sure how much support we can get from the rest of the population we know that 39 percent of people actively wanted to include us in the country but that's not a majority I would love to hear a bit more about how you've learnt to to use fire to promote species like the kangaroo grass. Have you relied on the Indigenous community to give you guidance or done experiments on top of that with timing? Because it's a, it's a very unfamiliar tool in Western hands for anything other than destruction. I've been using fire all my life. I learnt from older people, both white and black, and I taught my son and I've taught maybe a dozen people on the farm how to use fire. It's incredibly different to how Europeans use fire. All our words for fire, all our language words for fire are gentle words. We don't have wild words for wildfire for, you know, negative connotations. They're all warm and generous and food related terms mm. and about healing about caring and so we use fire very low temperature fire in winter and our fires go very very slowly in fact last winter we watched a praying mantis an australian insect walk out of 
away from one of our fires and the praying mantis walks at the pace of Michael Jackson it's at a very slow rate and uh, that was a thrill for us because it told us that we were doing the right thing we were burning correctly we, we were giving uh, animals a chance to remove themselves from the path of the fire but also at the end of our fire you can brush your hand across the top of the ash and it'll be emerald green beneath yeah because yeah. we haven't we haven't burnt the new growth or the growth that is preparing to burst out in spring we haven't scorched the earth mm. so our we don't overheat the soil so we're not killing microbes and worms and mycorrhizal fungi the old people were as conscious about animals beneath the soil as they were of those above and it it's something that australia must learn i'm in the cfa the country fire authority and when we go to fight fires we dress up as if we're going to war mm -hmm. we wear helmets and visors fireproof clothing boots that cost $500 a pair and we have all sorts of equipment that the army would be proud of to go and fight fires we have to stop talking about fighting fires and talk about lighting friendly fires and we shouldn't be dressing up expecting to get burnt we should be dressing up knowing that our fire will be so mild that no one will get burnt mm -hmm. When we light fires, we take a picnic lunch with us and our children and dogs. It, it almost reminds me of the difference between diplomacy and war. Like if you don't do diplomacy when the time is right, then war becomes inevitable. The, the situation builds up and builds up to the point where it's impossible to find a peaceful way out. I, I wonder, on this issue, I wonder how much of it comes down to the current uh, environment of liability, that if one person starts a fire and it causes damage to someone else's property, the law just automatically points the finger at the spark and not the massive fuel load that somebody allowed to build up on their land over years, in many cases. Yeah, I think we, we have to look at our legislation, look at our regulations. I don't know that Australia is ready for it. Mm. I don't know that we've got the guts for it. We have to do it, but whether we do it or not, I don't know. Mm. I think we kind of like the idea of fighting fires. I don't think we've got the, the guts to talk about stopping fires. Mm. So the crops that you grow, do you have any issues with pests? Like how do they integrate in with the local wildlife, for example? Like how what impact do kangaroos have on kangaroo grass? Not much. Kangaroos eat kangaroo grass. Bandicoots nibble at the roots, but these are Australian plants. Mm. These plants have been domestic original people for a hundred thousand years. You know, a coexistence develops in that time. So we don't like kangaroos. We don't try and uh, we don't uh, try and stop dunnarts. Dunnarts are as keen on the the grain from our grasses as any animal around, but the dunnart is one of our ancestral symbols. So we don't harm the Dunnart. And this coexistence is what Aboriginal people strive for. So that everyone 
has a piece of the productivity. You know, economists and particularly agricultural economists would be astounded at the variety of foods we get off an acre because we're getting maybe four grasses, two lilies, four orchids and some salad vegetables out of every acre on this place. And in some places, the proportion swings to orchids and salad vegetables and others it swings to grasses mm. and tubers. But all of those plants are grow as companion plants to each other. As old Uncle Max uh, used to say, these are families and you don't interrupt the families. You let the families have that extended relationship throughout, not just human families either, animal and plant families. And the plants are important to us as are the animals and equally important to ourselves. And we are no more important than a dunnard. I, I often wonder how much there was a similar dynamic in pre-industrial agriculture outside of Australia, that you would have much more diverse farms, you would have relatively lightly managed parts of the ecosystem that would often be a fallback when the main crop failed. So I know in Europe, often when the grain failed, people would go to the forest and collect the chestnuts and the hazels, which normally wouldn't be the most important task. They'd focus on the grain when it was there, but you would very regularly have grain failures and having a healthy forest that was managed to produce some chestnuts and some hazels and some mushrooms and some deer would prevent you from hitting a, a major disaster because, I mean, if, if one crop is, is everything to you, you're setting yourself up for failure. I, like, I think that's hugely important, the diversity of foods off the farm. Also, local provision of food is very important. So we, we try not to put food miles into our food mm -hmm. and we like to have a complexity of harvest. In terms of industrial agriculture, it makes our economy rather more fragile, but in the long term, it'll be robust because if we don't reform our farming techniques, we'll have killed the Australian soils, which mm -hmm. are notoriously infertile anyway. So, and we will have used more of the water that the, than the continent can give. We're not using any water here at the moment, other than in our seed shed, where we're propagating plants. Mm. And, you know, other other forms of industrial agri agriculture are really water heavy because they're, they're growing plants that don't belong to Australia. Mm. And so those plants are a bit surprised that there is so little moisture around. So then you have to irrigate. And with irrigation comes pests. And with pests, you have to poison. You know, that our, our production looks light on compared to the production of wheat and oats, for instance. And But when you, when you factor in the fact we don't put poison on, we don't put fertiliser on, we don't put extra water on, and we're building soil, mm -hmm. if an economist were to factor all those four things in, 
we would start looking very economic indeed. I, I often wonder as well about the functionality of Australia's wheat belt zones, because if you look at how they actually produce, when you get rainy years at the right time, you get this massive boom of production that all gets sent overseas at like bargain basement prices. But then you have years and years of long dry spells where they grow practically nothing. And if you wanted to imagine like a, a European style medieval village in that location, it's not possible because you have too many years in a row where that crop is basically unproductive. It only works in an industrial paradigm where you can stick it all in a, in a truck and then a ship and turn it into money whenever the opportunity arises. But if you actually wanted to grow a culture of it, a local culture, I mean, those towns are basically ghost towns. There's like a few people that drive tractors around and then that's about it. Like there, there's no community. And, and in the centre of Australia, during filming of Dark Emu, I flew across it in a helicopter. Uh, these are supposed to be the big cattle stations of Australia. You virtually saw no cattle. Mm -hmm. You know, one day we counted a dozen and, and less sheep. I, I, I struggled to see a sheep and very few kangaroos because the land was buggered. Mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the land had been stripped bare by overgrazing in drought conditions so that the, the cattle had been ravaging any plant that tried to be green. Mm. And, you know, the much vaunted Austra Central Australian cattle industry is a myth. Mm. You know, what is happening is that for 230 years, Australians have been using up black capital, the capital that Aboriginal people invested in the land whether it be in the, the pastures, the soils, the crops, it, Australia has, is fooling itself. You know, like you said about giving away our crops in boom times, we give away our minerals too. Mm. We don't seem to have the nous or the will to turn our iron ore into steel or our rare minerals into mobile phones. No. Australians just have a pick and shovel fellas. Mm. You know, we stick it on a boat and send it away and someone sells it back to us. It's the same with our forests. We decimate our forests and buy it back as hamburger wrappers from Japan. Mm. You know, Australia mm. needs to look at its economy and look at its business model. Our so-called businessmen, you know, paper barons going over to America and trying to become friends with Donald Trump, Australia's business model needs complete re-examination. And we need to stop being bloody cowboys and start being sensitive to our country. I'm sorry for being a little angry. No, That's no, I, very big, I, 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 I resonate with you entirely. I, during my studies, I had a chance to go through the Simpson Desert from Alice Springs back to Brisbane. And there'd been a very modest amount of rain in the months leading up to it. And the Simpson Desert was bursting with life, like just overflowing with life. And when we got to Birdsville, to the first cattle station, it was dust all the way to probably Toowoomba. Like, and it had gotten more rain through that region. And it was just completely wasted. Uh, there was nothing waiting to grow because it had already been eaten to the dust. And it was just such a, a heartbreaking experience to see what we're doing to that scale of the landscape. 
Yeah, I I was in Birdsville not so long ago, and I went up one week, and people were ploughing the land so they could sow something, whether it was wheat or barley or something, I don't know, but they were ploughing. There were dust columns, like 10-storey buildings that would have turned their snow pink. When I came back after after it had started to rain, about three weeks later, there were gutters two metres deep where the, the runoff had would taken the soil away. So what had gone into the air when they were ploughing was now going into the sea through the rivers or silting up the Australian rivers. Mm. Many of the Australian rivers could take 30-tonne boats, the Murray, the Darling, the, the Ginor that I'm on, the Western District rivers, the Swan River, they could all take really big boats. And now you can't get a surf ski up them because the runoff has ruined them. Australia's soil is now at the bottom of the river. Mm. And it's, it's, it's incomprehensible how a farmer could do that to his or her land. To sweep back around, are there other um, perennial grain species that you're aware of? Um, maybe the the Mitchell grass, the curly Mitchell grass. Can you tell us a bit about that one? Are you working with it or do you know people who are growing it in other yeah, districts? We're, we're, we're working with Mitchell grass and button grass. We're converting them both into flour. They're really easy to work with and they produce a, a, a lovely flour. We would say that the kangaroo grass is superior because of its aroma and its baking qualities. But Mitchell and button grass are, are very acceptable. But most of those fields have been ripped out of the ground so that we can grow cotton. Mm-hmm. In fact, those cotton fields were laser leveled in the 90s so that irrigation could work. And laser leveling means you create dust and then introduce irrigation later on the destruction of soil is incredible it's mindless and it's criminal and it's worth pointing out to the audience as well these are all perennial grain species so at the same time there are people madly trying to turn wheat and rye into perennial crops we already have perennial species right here waiting for people to learn how to use them australia doesn't know its history Mm. And it doesn't like what it knows. Uh, one general point Australia I often is a pariah. Australia is a pariah state when it comes to looking after the land. Mm. What was I going to say? No, oh, I had a thought, and it's gone. No, it's gone. So this is a a topic I wanted to cover with you, but I know you're not doing it in particular. Do you think? Well, do you know of anyone who is looking at breeding Australian native food species? So I know with the the finger limes is an example of a kind of breakout success. So there's, again, for people who aren't aware, there are a range of semi-arid adapted citrus species in Australia. There's there's quite a number of them. And uh, a group has started breeding them and releasing varieties for production and home growth, home gardeners as well. Yeah, look, there are uh, some Aboriginal uh, groups who are, making use of things like finger lime mm. and lemon myrtle, etc. Mm. We concentrate on grains and tubers 
because we see a sovereignty issue with those as well because they were staple foods. They were like the Irish potatoes. Yeah, uh, yeah. They were staples. So we're trying to make a political statement as well as a food and conservation statement. But there are uh, several companies like uh, Indigi Grow, Indigi Earth, all involved in these foods you talk about. Mm. But the vast majority of the money from Aboriginal foods goes to non-Aboriginal people. Mm. 99% of all money made out of Aboriginal food goes to non-Aboriginal people and 1% to Aboriginal people. So the the success of these plants is not in doubt. The willingness of Australia to include them in their diet is not in doubt. Australia's ability to imagine Aboriginal people having a share in that economy. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It shouldn't be. Our farm is a model for how to how to employ Aboriginal people growing Aboriginal foods, how to sell those foods to all of Australia. We want to give our culture away so that we can share it with you. But it is a real battle because foodies get very excited by these crops, by these foods, by these tastes, the flavours, the nutritional values, even the conservation ethic. But they fail to get excited about how Aboriginal people can benefit from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know I've repeated that statement, but I'll be repeating it. Yeah, no. And if you have, uh, afterwards, if you have any uh, potential contacts for people who are Indigenous people who are working on this as well, I, I would love to have uh, other guests uh, focusing on other crops in the future. So I'm, I'm very, very open to that. Um, what One yeah. thing I wanted to bring up... I, yeah, one thing I want to bring up, which I'm not sure if you know, I saw somewhere that for the first hundred years of Australian colonisation, we were a net food importer that we rely. Basically, we sent gold and timber and wool back to England and they sent us like mouldy flour and sugar to like barely keep us alive as we as we dug things up out of the ground to to ship back to them. So we almost were an unusual case that we went from an indigenous food system to a colonial extractive system to an industrial food system. And unlike other parts of the world, we don't have a, a pre-industrial form of intensive agriculture. So like in Japan, they've got a history of rice cultivation that goes back thousands of years. We have this disconnect between our modern colonial industrial culture and the indigenous food culture that came before. And if we ever had to simplify, if we have to have to abandon that industrial system, we don't have an obvious connection to tap back into. We will be relying on indigenous Australians to tell us, to show us what you can actually do with this country without destroying it. And has Australia got the ability to ask Aboriginal people anything mm. or to accept anything we say? Having rejected our voice, is Australia up to a conversation? Australia is looking down a very white tunnel in this country. But my, oh, sorry, after you. You can't mention the war. You can never, it's like John Cleese, don't mention the war. Mm. Don't mention that white people fought black people for the soil. And once it was won, we immediately forget anything of Indigenous accomplishment and like you say we import the flour 
and the biscuits and the, the tea and salt from overseas. We were importing salt in this country mm. when we've got the largest salt resources in the world outside of the bloody Russia. Mm. You know, it's blindness. It's colonial blindness. It's imperial blindness. Sorry, I, I can't. Yeah, 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 no. I cannot, I cannot I, soften it because it, Australia is acting like a colonial bastard. It, it, in my mind, because of our geographic isolation, we're likely to be one of the first westernised countries to be disconnected from the global trade network simply because we're so far away from everyone else. And it may be that in our future we're forced to confront these things just by harsh reality, that we can't import diesel that's refined in Singapore anymore to run all of our machines, that we we can't rely on people flying from the other side of the world to take a photo of something to to prop up our economy, that we're we're going to have to learn to live with the place that we're actually in. Difficult, but necessary if if when we get to that point. To, to get back to a more practical issue, so kangaroo grass grows in my district. I've seen it around and I'm an experimental farmer and I would love to experiment with ways of encouraging it to become more established. So do you have any advice for people working with these pretty old native species? What are the the conditions and the circumstances? Because it's not like a normal vegetable you know, you you buy the packet of seed and you you put a whole pile of compost and dig a hole and kind of force it to grow whether it wants to or not with these crops you need to convince them that they actually want to grow in the place that you would like them to grow well they'll grow where they like to grow and they will there are three or four varieties of kangaroo kangaroo grass and all but the driest deserts have some variety of them mm. they they will grow very willingly as long as they're associated with their companion plants. If you wanted your crop of kangaroo grass to succeed, one of the ways to do it is to stop cattle eating the seed. So when the, when the, the, the plant is ready to seed, you take your cattle off so that it can drop its seed, wait, wait for a rain, and then you can bring your cattle on and they can eat the stubble. But if you don't let a plant seed, you're not going to get young plants. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That seems to have escaped Australian farming. The other way is to introduce fire mm -hmm. so that you can suppress the exotics. And, and our plants, having been used to fire for 100,000 years, will flourish. Mm. After, after 2019 fires that swept through this property and fortunately didn't take the house, took plenty of buildings and machinery and things like that, but didn't take the house. After that fire, we lost all our kangaroo grass. Three months later, we had a massive crop of Microlina stipoides, another Australian plant, mm. which made a beautiful flower. And we didn't get that plant back again until we burnt two years later. Mm -hmm. So as we, as we learn more and more about our country here, that, the particular piece of country we're on, we realise that we have to be judicious with the use of fire in its timing and to learn those seasons and to accept that we're going to get this crop one year, this crop another year, and those three crops in another year. 
we have to be really flexible. And when we sell our flour, for instance, it's not kangaroo grass. It'll be kangaroo grass, spear grass with some wallaby grass. Mm. And we that proportion will change. Yeah, yeah. So Australians might have to accept what the country wants to give rather than demanding a single single crop and a single source and all this stuff that uh, foodies talk about now, you know, mm. this is a pure crop. Yeah, yeah. Not absolute. I, it almost makes me wonder about the potential ecological role of humans gathering, storing and transporting seed of plants that previously didn't have a symbiont. Like you think of fruiting plants that have relationships with particular birds or bats to transport them around the landscape and find opportunities for them. Humans could potentially or or may already have been going through the process of developing these partnerships with particular grasses to to help them find their niche in the environment. I'm I'm sure that's happened. You know, in in dark email, I talk about a little bag that men held around their necks was only so big. Mm. It was to carry seed. So when people were visiting relations or going to a ceremony, they would often take a gift and often that gift was food and more often than not, it was seed, mm. uh, seed from a plant. So there's a lot of studies being undertaken at the moment on things like black bean, cabbage palm, um, various wattles, and how Aboriginal people had aided their distribution mm. around the country. Mm. It's a really important bit of science. The research dollars to do it are very, very small. But once Australia does recognise that it has an Aboriginal past and also has an Aboriginal future, surely we'll start spending more money in those areas rather than trying to refine a single crop of, of wheat. Mm. You know, when I was at school, we were learnt to lord the man who made rust-proof wheat and there was never any consideration of the old Aboriginal woman who invented baking mm. the old aboriginal woman who made bread for the first time never heard about her are you aware of the land racing technique of developing locally adapted crops that's one of the things that we encourage people to look into so the, ba the basic idea is that you bring diversity together of different strains of a crop and you allow them to naturally intermingle and then from those founding genetics you select something that's locally adapted to your soil and climate and your own tastes as well like some sometimes that's a factor in developing something and I, I wonder if you can see any potential for that to be used to reintroduce indigenous crops into areas where they may have been pretty much lost if they may have been wiped out and people are interested in bringing them back well we we're doing it because we're we're taking our knowledge to other Aboriginal communities and they are bringing their knowledge to us mm. and we are sharing plenty of crops. Mm. For instance, one of the people who works on the farm is a Nyapa man and has a great association with Kwandong. So we're growing a lot of Kwandong here because we can see it, its usefulness for us as a food plant. There are what we didn't know when we started growing Kwandong 
was that there's a local Kwandong. Even down here in Far East Gippsland, there's a local Kwandong. Mm. Very so, surprising. It's yeah, a very it's a very like subtropical that. species. Yeah. Well, we're we're growing that now too as an experiment. Because spear grass and kangaroo grass grows nearly all around Australia. You know, I say to I say to people who who a lot of Aboriginal communities want to use their land for growing food. I said, look, don't ask us for our food. Let's walk around your cemetery. Let's walk mm. along your railway line and find where sheep haven't been and where superphosphate hasn't been. And we will find your old food. Yeah. We'll find your old Aboriginal food. Let's reintroduce that. And you know, you get 20 or 30 people hand harvesting seed on the edge of a railway line that'll make a very fine paddock here. Yeah, yeah. As long as you keep cattle and sheep away. Sheep in particular are, are terrible for Australian plants. Sheep are lovely animals. Mm. A baby lamb is as cute as any baby animal you'll ever see. But they come from a different hemisphere and they're terribly destructive in Australia. And, you know, I've I've uh, grown sheep before and I've grown cattle. I love them all as fellow creatures, but they're not right for this country. And with one of my brothers, I'm trying to get rid of horses out of the high plains, not because I hate horses. I've got two here, but they're on country that they can't destroy. Mm. Up in the high plains, they are, they are murdering that ecosystem up there. They're the wrong animal in the wrong place. Let's put the right animals and the, the right plants are back in their place. And, you know, this country ought to be eating kangaroo. We shouldn't be grazing hard-hooked animals. And we, since the fires and the eradication of foxes for a short period of time, we've got a plague of bandicoot at the moment. A roasted bandicoot is as beautiful a meal as you're ever going to have. In terms of meat, it is absolutely succulent. Mm. And, you know, we should be eating bandicoot. And not overeating bandicoot. Not overeating crayfish. Not overeating kangaroo. But sustainably. Yeah, re rebalancing the population. Less meat in general. Mm. And when you're harvesting, harvest sustainably. Look at the number of animals and think, how many of these can we eat without knocking that population around? And our, our rule of thumb is if you take too many kangaroos, you'll find that those kangaroos will not come back to your property. While you're taking just enough, the, the kangaroos will stay with you because they can sense that you're not making inroads into their viability. Now, let's have a look at what else we haven't covered today. Well, we, we might start wrapping it up because we've had a wonderful conversation. There, there's a couple of bonus round questions, and I'm not sure what you'll make of them because these are, well, anyway, we'll see what you make of them. So if you could wave a magic wand and create a new kind of plant, or maybe in your case to reestablish a plant that was lost, what would you do if, if you had that power? I wouldn't want that power. I'd want the country to have it. I'd want Mother Earth to have that power. And I would listen to her. 
and I would repeat what she said to me. It's not up to me. It's not up to any individual, any genius. Uh, you called me an expert. I'm not an expert. I listen to country. Yeah. I, I do what country tells me to do. But what I would encourage Australians to do is to eat munion, vanilla lily, mm -hmm. arthropodium, because it's highly nutritious. It's the most rugged plant I know. And we harvest 40 tubers of each plant three times a year. That's, you know, with, with a carrot, you pull the carrot out, that's it. One carrot, one plant, 120 tubers to each plant, and that plant will do the same for you next year. Yeah. It's, it's a wonder plant. And um, I'm trying to introduce it into the Australian diet now. But I fear that Australia has to learn its history first. I, I've been very curious about the potential of, um, you know, the Dorianthes, the spear lilies. I've heard reports that their their roots were eaten. They were like bandicooted out. Yeah. Just some of the roots were taken from mature plants without taking the whole plant and then roasted. Yeah, look, I... I, I'm talking about one lily. Mm. I'm pretty sure there'd be 120. Yeah, uh, yeah. There'd be a, you know, I know that we harvested about 100 grasses. There's so much food here, mm. like basket grass, lamandra. The seed on that is very large, very hard, but very prolific. And Aboriginal people were seen to be harvesting. What for? How did they process it? Mm. All of this knowledge is in front of us. But when, once the secret has been found, Australia has to ask itself, we've got this gift because it's been cultivated by Aboriginal people into millennia. Mm -hmm. What we have now is a domesticate of one form or another. How do we then thank Aboriginal people? It, it makes me realise there's a very fuzzy line between discovery and rediscovery in the cycles of history that you can stumble back onto something that was lost. And you can't exactly attribute that to anyone, at least not at least not the person in the history book that supposedly did it, you know, 20 years ago. There's there's ways of being human that transcend different cultures, that unite us, that we we have common tendencies and and talents and abilities. And I, I think the more we can recognize that, the more we can work together. Across the world, we all made bread. Australian Aboriginal people made it 65,000 years ago. The Egyptians about 17,000 years ago. But the human brain came up with the same idea, mm. you know, many thousands of years apart. And I'm, it's not a league table of genius about, you know, bread making that I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the human brain and what we perceive as being uh, possible and so my hope for australia is that we will be able to accept aboriginal knowledge and i i guess we have to accept aboriginal people first uh, but then once the knowledge is accepted then comes the gratitude and i have, don't think we've scratched the surface on the the foods that aboriginal people were eating we're we're starting to eat a a salad vegetable from our flats. We're on Salt River here, so we've got a marsh, salt marsh, and it's producing salad vegetables and 
some of them we don't even know what they're called. Mm. They're botanical names. And we have to search through our own culture, the records of our own culture, to find a reference to them. And sometimes we have to invent a name for them because the old name has been lost. But we don't talk about loss. Uh, we talk about what is to be found. That's wonderful. So how do you hope to pass on your work to future generations? This is a really important question that I always ask at the end because we we all have just one life and how we contribute to other people's lives is how our legacy kind of continues on, how we... How we I, well, it's how I find meaning in, in ultimately. So I'm curious about what your thoughts are around that. Well, first and foremost, I pass it on to Aboriginal people so that our people have an opportunity to be part of the industry when it eventually gets going. Because uh, as I said before, 99% of all money from our food goes to non-Aboriginal people. So I'm concentrating on passing it on to Aboriginal people I'm fortunate to have a, a group of men and women who I work with and belong to who are trying to reassert the old ways, the old culture. I also have a marvellous daughter, marvellous son, and four grandkids. And every chance we get, we're out on country, and I know that the people who work on the farm do the same with their kids. That's how we pass it on. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. Final plug, where's the best way that people can learn more about you or get in contact if you're open to that? We've got a website called Black Duck Foods. People could go to the website and that'll that'll tell you about our farm and what we're doing. And I would also highly recommend people, if you haven't read Dark Emu already, give it a look. It's an, it's an eye-opening window into a past that's rapidly slipping out of our fingers and the and the film a dark immune story broadcast on abc this year mm. is also a really good resource because it talks not just about dark immune but about the archaeology that, that has happened since mm. and that's a really important uh source as well brilliant read charlie massey's cry of the reed warbler mm -hmm. really worthwhile yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm very, very grateful for you taking the time today. And thank you so much for sharing your work and your story with our audience.